This is from 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, 8 through 22. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic and love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Among the many emails that I receive weekly are a weekly news update from the Christian Institute and uh, the Barnabas Fund. And as I read one from the Christian Institute, uh, I cannot help but get quite worked up about the secularisation of our country and the injustice that many Christians are experiencing. Then I read the, the Barnabas Fund one, which contains details of more recently, children killed at a, a wedding in Egypt by a, a drive-by gunman. Uh, Christians in Pakistan threatened at gunpoint to convert to Islam. And of course, all the recent terrible stories in Syria. And it's not to knock the work of the Christian Institutes. After all, without them, we'll end up in the same situation. But it's humbling to hear of stories of Christians in other parts of the world. And it makes our minor trials quite often pale into insignificance. Why do we get so worked up when our utility bills are going up, when our neighbours won't cut the hedge, when we can't get an appointment with the doctor the same day? Well, the theme of this sermon series we're going through at the moment is changing the world or impacting others through our changed lives. And one Peter is a letter which has at its heart a theme of holiness what it means to be holy, what it means to live holy lives. Lives which are different from those around us. And if we are Christians, I hope we don't worry about being different because those differences are actually very attractive. Those different values that make us stand out are some values which draw people to, to God. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope you will be drawn to Christ through the examples of Christians, but ultimately through the example of Christ himself. Because Christians are still far from perfect. 
whereas Christ is completely perfect, as we shall see later. Well, this passage starts with a call to Christians to live attractive lives. And just look at verse 8. These are beautiful values, aren't they? Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another, or be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Remember a friend I brought along to Kohenai once, he said, I, I don't quite get this Christianity thing, but um, all the Christians I've seen to meet are, are really nice people. It's great when people say that, isn't it? And um, some of the time it, it's true. Um, but when we're honest, a lot of the time it's not. We can be like-minded, we can be sympathetic, we can love one another, we can be compassionate, we can be humble. But we can also be divided, we can be unsympathetic, we can love ourselves, we can be unfeeling, and we can be proud. So let's just briefly look at what we could be like and take each one of these briefly in turn. Finally, all of you be like-minded. Literally, be of the same mind, the mind of Jesus Christ himself. Have the same thoughts and attitudes and spiritual things that would make division unthinkable. And that means to know what you believe. It means to know how you agree to behave. It's the fundamentals. Things we make sure people understand if they want to become members of the church because it's this that unites us. And what is tragic is when we, we do share the same beliefs and we are like-minded, when we do have the same love for Jesus Christ and yet we fall out over differences of opinion on other issues. And it's often not even doctrine, it can just be issues of structure and style and strategy. We can't afford to let those things divide us. We have something far more important that holds us together. And so when we do have a disagreement, which we will have, won't we, because we are all different, and let's try to reconcile them. See, compromise where possible. And when not, when a decision is taken that goes against what we think it should be then, that's when we need to practice what we've been looking at the last few weeks, isn't it? Submission. How do we submit to one another? Be like-minded. Certainly be sympathetic. When a family member is suffering, we feel it strongly, don't we? we and likewise, when a member of the church family is suffering, and many of them are, at the moment, we feel it. And I guess the strength of that feeling will depend on how well we know the person. Which is really a challenge for each one of us to get to know people better, isn't it? Because the closer we become to one another, the better we understand each other, the more we will appreciate the struggles that each one of us will be going through, and the more we will be able to sympathise with them. That is why Jesus came to earth, isn't he? We, we told in Hebrews that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He can sympathise with us, he can help us, because he knows what we're going through. So if we're going to sympathise with another, let, let's make an effort to understand and know what people are struggling with. Well, the next attribute is to be those who love one another. You know, if we are Christians, we know what it is like to be loved by Jesus. And therefore we can show that same love to one another. And it's a love that goes beyond emotional love, 
It's a sacrificial love, but it's expressed in practical action, giving practical support. What characterises the love of Jesus is that he loved us when we didn't deserve to be loved. And so often our response to those in need is not what should I do, what is expected of me, but what can I do? What could I do to help this person? What love could I show? Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? A great lesson, isn't it? What was amazing about that parable was that um, nothing was expected of that Samaritan. You know, a priest had gone by, a Levite had gone by. They hadn't done anything to help. And here was this guy who was a stranger, and yet he did what was unexpected. He did what he could. He showed love in action. Love one another. Be compassionate or tender-hearted, not only in your actions of love, but in the way you, you feel about others. Be caring. It's similar to sympathetic, so I won't dwell on that one too much. But moving on, be humble. Be humble. Humility is crucial to the future, I think, of our church. Because it's crucial to becoming a Christian in the first place. You know, what enables you to become a Christian is that God has demonstrated to you your pride. And you've seen how ugly that is. You can only accept Jesus as Lord with humility. There's no room for, for pride in the Christian. Now, of course, there are still sinful traits in us, and pride is one of them, so we do need to ask God's help to, to put that to death. We need to be aware when it comes out, when we're, we're desperate to win an argument for the sake of it, to get our own way, to be seen to be good. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. Just imagine what impact we would have if we behaved like this all the time. If people looked at us as a community of those who loved one another. Well, so far, so good, but most people, I guess, whether or not they are Christians, because of the grace that God has given them, will agree that the things we've just talked about are good even if they find them hard to do themselves. But the next verse is a greater challenge because it goes against the instinct of the fallen human nature. What do we do when people insult us, when they treat us badly, or when they even persecute us? Well, look what it says in verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now this is probably the most challenging exhortation to us as Christians because it goes against our desire for what we call justice but often is really revenge. And Peter goes even further than this, not just do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with blessing. Now that is a huge ask, isn't it? It's hard enough for us when somebody has said something unkind about us. But what about when someone has killed a member of our family which is going on every day in Syria? What about when somebody's taken hostage as we've heard about this morning? What reasons does this passage give us for not repaying evil with evil? Well there are three I just want to touch on briefly and the first of those is because God calls us to turn from evil. And in quoting from Psalm 34 here what Peter is doing is saying do not tempt, be tempted to be as bad as they are. Because that will turn you away from God as well. 
Look what it says here in verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil, their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. The way you turn from evil is to do good, it's to seek peace. Whatever somebody has done to us, we must seek peace and reconciliation. Now ultimately it's down to them if they enjoy that peace with us. We can't force them to, but we we can offer that peace. In Romans Paul also talks about the same issue. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Remember when the pastor of a church we attended in Brazil came back to the UK, um, came back with the children, their adopted Brazilian daughter, Rosie. Uh, she was somebody who used to look after our boys when they were toddlers when we were out there. Uh, sadly, she got in, the, in with the wrong crowd and uh, she ended up being beaten and bullied and ended up jumping out of a window and dying. And her parents were interviewed on national TV and said publicly that they forgave these girls who were found guilty of killing their daughter and that they were praying for them. They were praying for them. Ultimately, as Christians, we believe that justice will be done. And if not in this world, then in the world to come. But the the question is, do we simply want to see people punished for what they've done? Or do we want them to know forgiveness? Do we want them to know the forgiveness that we have known? Let us pray that those who are guilty of evil will see the error of their ways. That they will repent. They will seek the Lord's forgiveness. And in so doing, our own anger actually will die down. Let's follow the example of Jesus on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But why else not do we not repay evil for evil, but repay with blessing? Well, because it leads to blessing for us. Look what it says here, repay evil with blessing, verse 9, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. Love life, see good days. As Christians we are promised future blessing. Do you remember those words at the beginning of this letter? We're promised an inheritance that can never fade, spoil or perish. Kept in heaven for you. And that's that's a living hope for the future which we'll come back to. But the passage implies there'll be blessing in this life for those who live godly lives and do not succumb to the temptation to be evil. Now the trouble is, we equate this present blessing with um, a trouble-free life, security, peace, prosperity, good health. And that's clearly not the case for many Christians in the world today. So what is this good life then? What is that good life that talks about? Well, is it not a, a contentment with the life that God has given us, the situation that he has placed us in. Is it not 
the knowledge that in the words of verse 12, look there, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to their prayer. Blessing comes from knowing that we're not in this alone. We are aware of the Lord's presence, his comfort, his strength. We heard that from Simone earlier, didn't we? To know that there are people praying for you, to know that the Lord is there for you. And that keeps us going until we receive our real inheritance, our future blessing in heaven. Which leads us on to the final reason for why not repay evil for evil? Because it enables us to impact others for the kingdom. The passage here assumes that if we do good, no one will harm us. And in actual fact, they will speak well of us. They'll glorify God as a result. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, one of the sort of key verses from this whole letter? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The more good we do as a church, in the community, the less we'll be open to criticism. But of course that is not always the case. We will still experience unjust treatment, either as a church or as individuals. The question is, how do we respond to that? Well, when we respond in a way that goes against how most people would respond, then others will stand up and take notice. When we respond to suffering in a way that shows our absolute trust in God, rather than complaining why it should happen to us, people will ask us, as it says here in verse 15, to give the reason for the hope that you have. Most of us who are Christians are desperate to share our faith with others. But we struggle with, how do we do that? How do we tell other people? Well, Peter's saying here, if you live a godly life, it will happen naturally. If you're living as a loving, united community that does not seek revenge when it's unfairly treated, that does not slander others, people will ask you, what is different about you? That command to, to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, it comes, look where it comes, after an exhortation, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. It's quite rare, isn't it, that people come up to you and say, well, tell us, why, why do you believe what you do? But it's more common that um, people will see you behave in a certain way and then ask you why. They'll ask you, why aren't you worried? Why aren't you angry? Well, I would be if I was in your situation. To revere Christ as Lord in your heart, as it says here, is to say, whatever happens to me, whether it's serious persecution, in the case of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, or mild injustice, in our case, nothing will cause me to lose what is most important in my life, and that is Jesus Christ. Nothing, not even death, can separate me from his love. If this life was all there was, then yes, I would be right. But I have a hope for the future. I have an eternity spent with God to look forward to. 
But what if you are not yet a Christian? You're not yet in that place. You're not clear what that hope is that, that we who are have. Or maybe if you are a Christian, but you've lost sight of that hope. Maybe things are so tough in your life at the moment. You've lost sight of that hope. But what does this passage say to us? The third point I want to make as we finish is that Christ's suffering was the path to his resurrection and his glory. And that is a path that we can follow. Peter wraps up this section in um, verse 17 to say, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good and for doing evil. But then he goes on to give a reason. He says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit or in the Spirit. Now that is a very neat summary of the Gospel, isn't it? What Christ has done for us. He suffered, he died once, for sins. A shorthand for saying that he died to take away the penalty due to us for our sin. He suffered once. He didn't need to do it again. What he's done is it's complete. It is finished. And that is valid for all time. And what happened in that death is that a righteous person, a sinless person, died on behalf of the many unrighteous people, including every one of us here this morning, None of us would be righteous if Christ hadn't died for us. But with the purpose of that substitution, to bring you to God. To make you right with God. To enable you to be fit to come into his presence. So that you can spend an eternity with him. Without that substitution taking place, we'd be confined to eternal darkness. And unless you accept that Jesus' death was for you personally, that is still what will happen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But Jesus' death is not the end of the story, is it? He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He conquered death in order that death for us would not be the end. And all of that, he's gone to heaven. He's at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, as it says there, and powers in submission to him. He was glorified. Jesus' suffering was the path to his resurrection and glory. And he made it possible for us to follow that same path. Now we need to remember that Peter here is not talking theoretically about the possibility of dying for your faith. He's talking to believers here, many of whom did die for their faith. He himself died for his faith. For us in this country, that just may be theory. But hopefully, it may make us be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ, knowing that it is the path to glory. It's not our suffering that will save us, but if it's a demonstration of the fact that we revere Christ as Lord in our hearts, and only he can bring us to God, and that is what saves us. And even as it says at the end of this um, passage about baptism, even the act of baptism itself doesn't save us. Look there down in verse 21. 
you can't physically wash sin away. But baptism is an outward physical ceremony that has been given to us for our benefit to, to demonstrate what has taken place inside of us. The forgiveness of sin. We've been given a new heart, a clear conscience toward God. Jesus has gone into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. But as we're told in Ephesians, God raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That is amazing. Doug Brog and Rosa Wood are there now, as are many of our loved ones too. And one day, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we will be there with them. Hallelujah. Let's have a moment of quiet just to, to take that in. To think about the challenge that these words are to us and the way we live our lives. And to give us that vision of what keeps us going, that hope that is so precious. A moment of quiet and I'll pray. Father God, we thank you for this vision of a church that is united, that is of one mind, that is sympathetic and loving towards one another. We thank you also for this vision of a church that is prepared to undergo suffering for the name of Christ. And we think of the impact that we can have on those around us as they look at us and question, why are we like that? Why are we not worried? Why are we not fearful? Why are we not angry? Those who ask us for the reason, for the hope we have. And the hope is because we know that you are in control. We know that we have a glorious inheritance to look forward to. That this world is not all there is. That our inheritance is in the life to come. Lord, we do pray that we would stand firm. That we would be prepared to undergo injustice in this world. We pray for the example of our brothers and sisters who are undergoing it at this very time and that we've been inspired to follow them that we inspired above all to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who is now with you, he's glorified with you and we look forward to that day when we too will be glorified and with you in your presence in Jesus name Amen